This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Well, we're living in a day and age in which those words from 2 Timothy 4.3 are shockingly obvious. And while evangelicals used to read that passage and perhaps think about mainline liberal Protestants or the cults today... Our own house is the one quickly moving toward apostasy. And as my next guest has noted, there is now a dramatic departure from biblical truth by supposedly evangelical leaders and institutions, amounting to a wide-scale rejection of God's word as the authority for faith and practice. And I couldn't agree with him more. So we are going to talk today with Dr. Frank Wright, president and CEO of D. James Kennedy Ministries. He was the former CEO of the National Religious Broadcasters and has written a great piece over at the Christian Post, Biblical Infidelity in top evangelical institutions and leaders. And Frank, so good to have you with us. How are you today? Thank you, Jen. It's great to be with you, too. Well, I loved your article, as you know, and I read it and I said, I'm so glad somebody is saying this. This is so refreshing that you were just willing not only to call out the broader problem, but to also call out some of those people who we really need to be concerned about. What drew you to finally say, I got to put this on a piece of paper and get this on the Internet so people can really read it and think about it? It was like going to a baseball game at Three Rivers Stadium, the confluence of the Three Rivers in, in Pittsburgh that, uh, that marked that uh, location. It really was the confluence of events. It was one after another. might have been the Southern Baptist Convention that tipped it for me when I heard about the launching of their new Baptist network. At first I thought they were talking about some kind of a media network, but no, a network of churches splitting away from what we would all um, typically look at as one of the more biblically faithful and conservative denominations uh, here in America, and the largest single denomination in America. Mm-hmm. So it was it was that I suppose it just tipped me over the edge, and and uh, and of course Andy Stanley, uh, his comments have been ringing in my ears for a couple of years now. Yes, <laughs> and and I will tell you, Janet, I, I really hesitated to call individuals out, but at the end I thought. There's got to be individual accountability here. Yeah. This is, I didn't use the H word anywhere in the article. I'm going to use it right now. This is heresy. Yeah. Heresy is not just the things that you say that are wrong. It's the things that are essential that you leave out. And a good portion of this is that second kind of heresy in which they're ignoring whole portions of Scripture to accommodate themselves to the culture and in, in other cases, based on that, embracing clearly false teaching. Uh, and and your, your lead-in was exactly right. How many decades has it been now since we saw the mainline, so-called mainline Protestant churches begin their march away from truth? It all began 
with the rejection of the Bible as the sole authority for faith and practice. It's so true. So true. Well, you know, it's interesting because you said you were half right when you were the president of NRB. You were concerned about the, as you called it, timid self-censorship among Christian leaders. But I'm wondering why you believed, to begin with, that a time of timid self-censorship was coming. And then it led into talking about this departure from biblical truth that we're seeing now. How are those two things tied together, would you say? Janet, when I was at the NRB, most of our focus there was on trying to defend Christian broadcasters in arenas, in important arenas in Washington, D.C., like the regulatory arena at the FCC, in the courts, uh, before the Congress, in many cases, different branches of the administration. And what I saw were threats coming from government. Government is, is the biggest enemy of truth. It's the biggest enemy of religious freedom and free expression in general. And I just saw a growing uh, pattern of behavior and statements being made and bills being filed that suggested to me that the future is going to be a time of emerging uh, government censorship. And, and I knew, <laughs> I just, you know, we all know which ones are the strong ones and which ones are the weak ones yeah. when it comes to this question of biblical fidelity, because it's no fun <laughs> to stand up and be strong when the culture is going to hate you for it. Right. Jesus never said, it's going to be fun when they hate you for, because of me, because <laughs> of your faith in me. Uh, and so you could sort of pick the ones who would, they were already sort of, you know, it was, uh, it's, it's, it's the people you and I would have called 10 years ago on the evangelical left. Yep, yep. And it's hard to call them evangelical anything these days. They're just on the left, period. Oh, right. And evangelical is just the skirts behind which they, they hide their true colors. So I, I, my initial supposition was it's going to be government censorship, government control, uh, hate crimes laws used against uh, the propagation of the gospel because you're exporting hate, don't you know? And and that mission organizations would, would be under scrutiny because of that reason as well. And instead, there is that. We still face those threats. But instead, to see uh, uh, just a literal turning their back and walking away from the blood of the martyrs, which are, is the seed of the church, which has secured the Word of God for 2,000 years, 3,500 years of the Judeo-Christian tradition, to see them walk away from it in this manner, and still claim to be shepherds of Christian flocks. Mm. I, I just couldn't uh, couldn't take it anymore. No, I, I totally agree <laughs> with you. I can't take it anymore on a daily basis. So I appreciate that yeah. I have some company, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And you know, it's interesting because it seems what popped into my head when you were describing the evangelical left was now we have an evangelical left in the evangelical right. I mean, it's getting very confusing. We almost need a flow chart to keep track of all of this. But when you mentioned the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the things that Dr. Russell Moore said when he took over the helm of the ERLC was the culture wars are over. We need to stop fighting these culture wars and we need to be all about the gospel as if we weren't about the gospel before then. But that has kind of seeped in as a mentality in a lot of different sectors of evangelicalism now that you're wrong if you go out there and like you guys are doing, standing up to the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, calling Christians hate groups and things like that. That's not really of interest to a lot of these people anymore. They, they have higher goals like open borders and making sure that we yell about kids in cages, which started under Obama and Anyway, I mean, what do you make of that takeover, if we want to call it that? 
Well, in, in addition to the question of authority, the question of authority is always what has driven biblical, you know, not just biblical fidelity, but but Christian fidelity. Uh, if you're if you don't accept the scriptures as the only source, the only uh, rule for faith and practice, then almost anything goes. You can sort of pick and choose. And it's been a long time since I've been in a Chinese restaurant that had column A and column B. But the old metaphor there was choosing one from column A because you like that, and column B you like you like that. And so this idea of choosing your faith. Uh, you know, is not is not is not at all new. By the way, Russell Moore is someone I could easily have called out in this column for his egregious walking away uh, from biblical truth yep. uh, in, the, in the same manner. And so, what what I think we see them doing here is the same classic line that's been argued in different circles about the way to reach the culture is to accommodate yourself to the culture. Right. Now, let me be clear in saying I don't put the seeker-friendly church in that same uh, um, basket of uh, biblical infidelity, but the idea was the same. When it was launched decades ago, Bill Hybels being sort of the prototype of Willow Creek, uh, it was basically saying, let's accommodate ourselves to what the culture is comfortable with, and then they'll come in, and then they'll hear the gospel. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that was true, and then decades later, Hybels himself said, it seems to me like we never really produced any and any deep disciples uh, out of that approach. He did. They came in, they stayed comfortable the whole time they were there, they heard the gospel, and no doubt some got saved, but their faith is a mile wide and an inch deep, which describes is a good description of the church today anyway. So it's a, a similar kind of approach that accommodating yourself to culture in order to reach it is just a synonym for walking away from truth. If you won't stand for truth, uh, I mean, if you're if you're going to accommodate the culture, you can't stand for truth, at least not completely. Or you uh, modify, try to modify the view, try to soften the view. You know, that's the view of some of our friends, not even some of our friends on the evangelical left. I subscribe to your view as well that the problems in the center these days is if we just need a kinder, gentler. Uh, Christianity. Oh, man. Tell you what, let's take a short break. We'll come back with Dr. Frank Wright from D. James Kennedy Ministries talking about biblical infidelity in evangelicalism. We'll be right back. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The COVID-19 virus is having a terrible impact for the most vulnerable among us, the unborn. This past week, a woman shared she feared being pregnant with so much going on in the world. The abortionist gave her an RU-46 pill to terminate her pregnancy. Our Preborn Center was there for her, however, reversed the abortion pill and saved her baby. Our crisis line is flooded with women with similar stories. Preborn centers are the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And this May, through a challenge grant, Preborn will be able to send 100 thousand dollars to clinics if this goal is reached and you can help call 855-402-BABY that's 855-402-2229 one ultrasound is just 28 dollars, but this challenge will double your efforts to donate just call 855-402-BABY that's 855-402-2229 all gifts are tax deductible that's 855-402-2229 or there's a pre-born banner to click at janetmefford.com are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community 
that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Welcome back. I just had to get my guest, Dr. Frank Wright, on the show because I so appreciated what he wrote over at ChristianPost.com, a great piece, Biblical Infidelity and Top Evangelical Institutions Leaders. It's such an important topic because we are seeing it isn't just the main line anymore that we have to worry about when it comes to undermining the authority of Scripture and standing on the witness of Jesus Christ and this you know, inerrancy of his word. We're seeing all kinds of problems, and I appreciate that Frank is here and actually naming names and institutions. Let's talk about some of these, Frank. You had mentioned the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, one of the problems there also we should throw in is the identity politics, the embracing of identity politics, intersectionality, critical race theory, and these things. And yet a lot of these people, when called out, say, well, we're just trying to broaden the conversation. We still have orthodox Christian statements of faith. And I'm thinking, yeah, but if, it, if you're not applying it, what good is it? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's well said. Uh, a statement of faith means little if there's not a, a, a commitment to back that up in actions and in demonstrated uh, ministerial approaches. Janet, I think one of the things that's happened is look at the look at the colleges and universities that are associated with some of these historic denominations, and you see the same thing as there as well. If the church here's, and here's the point about that, if the church is not faithful and the church walks away from b- biblical fidelity, what do the seminaries look like? What do the universities look like? What do Christian schools at the at the uh, you know that are attached to uh, Christian Christian churches across America? You know, we have this idea that if we can just get our kid to go to K through 12 at a Christian school, or you know maybe homeschooled K through 12, and then go off to a you know to a Christian university, I got news for you: the Christian universities today look like the evangelical left. Yep. There are very few that I can think of, less than one handful that I would recommend any Christian parent to send their kid to today. And that's not the worst part of that whole discussion. We could have that as a separate discussion. The idea of Christian parents sending their kids off to lose their faith at these big-name secular institutions because their own pride of position in the place, I want Junior to graduate from University of whatever, and uh, and then they send them off, and and the whole environment environment there is to destroy their faith, set That's against right. their faith. Right. And you know, I, I don't believe you can lose your faith if you had a sincere faith in Christ going there, but you can basically have it gutted, where to where it has no effect on your life or on anybody around you, and then you're not much of a disciple. 
you're just sort of the flotsam and jetsam of Christianity. You sort of float along with whichever direction it happens to be going at any one point in time. And you're so right about that. And you make me think about some of these campus ministries are experiencing the same sort of thing. Groups like Crew, you know, which used to be Campus Crusade for Christ and University. I had talked not recent, not too long ago about the University Missions Conference Urbana, and they had a whole session on same-sex missionaries. And I'm like, what happened here? You, I, you know, the yeah. pro-LGBT thing, we could do an hour or, th- or three about that issue. But you mentioned, for example, Chick-fil-A and the Presbyterian Church in America. We have Revoice on one hand and then Chick-fil-A. We all get behind them because they're standing on the biblical foundation of supporting marriage. And then they, they do a switch. I mean, what what was up with that? Astonishing switch. They call out... Uh, three organizations that had unquestionable Christian convictions and long-term min- you know, ministry history to prove the level of their commitment, Salvation Army, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and some are, may not be as well acquainted with the Paul Anderson Youth Homes, but these are organizations with a firm biblical foundation yeah. and a strong commitment to the gospel of Christ as the only way of salvation. And uh, Chick-fil-A made a public spectacle of them by cutting off their support, not just cutting it off by saying, you know, calling them up and saying, we're not going to write you any checks anymore. They went public with a big whole, whole exercise about how these groups are anti-LGBT, and therefore we're not going to support them anymore. Well, <laughs> you don't have to wake up Einstein here. These groups are not anti-anything. Yeah. They are biblical Christians, yeah. and the Bible has much to say about these things, as it does in every other area. And so for simply subscribing to the historic Christian faith, uh, the same faith, by the way, that Chick-fil-A itself claims to profess, they get called out and, uh, and, and trashed publicly. And then as soon as, by the way, the funding was cut off, Chick-fil-A on its foundation website had a heading or, you know, kind of a news item basically saying Chick-fil-A no longer supports those anti-LGBT groups. Uh. So they didn't just do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And then as you have already alluded to, or at least suggested, uh, it wasn't that long ago. That's the bitter irony here. It wasn't that long ago that Christians stood by Chick-fil-A when their, you know, their president was made a favorable comments on a biblical view of marriage. Christians stood by them. And what do they do now? They don't just walk away. They walk away and, you know, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what gesture you want to describe them doing as they walk away, but certainly maybe the, the four fingers under the chin from, you know, from the continent. Right. But uh, they have lost their way as well. They have, there, there are lots of godly people associated with Chick-fil-A. I have no doubt about that. But at the top level, at the leadership level, they have lost their way. Absolutely. You also, I'm really glad that you mentioned this uh, National Association of Evangelicals, which has been, in my opinion, off the reservation for a while. But now they're supporting this legislation in which they give the gay movement what it wants and we get pretty much nothing in return. <laughs> I mean, this fairness oh, for all. Even, yeah, It's even worse than that. It's even worse than that, Janet, because you can, you can hear the hiss of the serpent in this. They said that their approach was, let's give the gay movement what it wants in exchange we'll get exemptions for the church. Awful. And so, <laughs> no. you know, you don't, you, you don't have to spend a lot of time to wa- in, in Washington, D.C. to realize that those exemptions would last about as long as the dew on a hot summer morning. <laughs> uh, yeah, you give them what they want, and then they will chip away at every exemption, and they'll find ways to show how you're, you're violating the... Uh, you know the the, uh, the intent of the of the uh, um, 
exemptions that you've gotten. Uh, it's, it's nothing more that the, than a far-left strategy to make you give up your core position in exchange, as you really said, for nothing, uh, and then and see what that little nothing that they gave you, just see that disappear as well. Yeah, well, and it's amazing to me in all these instances that you don't have Christians who can see clearly what's going on. To me, it's so patently obvious, and to you as well. But I, I just see more and more caving all the time, and the things to which they appeal to defend what they are doing, no matter if it's identity politics or you know uh, legislation that would disadvantage the church, they don't seem to go back to the Bible. This this is something that's just driven home to me every day, Frank. There is not a lot of going back to Scripture and saying, what does the Word of God tell me that I ought to do in this situation? Is that really what you think is the fundamental issue? Oh, I do. I absolutely do. It's, uh, you know, when, when uh, Jesus opened the scroll in the synagogue to teach, he kissed it first. Yeah. Why? To show his reverence for the Word of God. In the Psalms, God says he honors his Word even above his own name. Heaven and earth will pass away. My Word will never pass away. Trust not in your own understanding, you know, trust in the, the, the truth of Scripture. All Everywhere through Scripture, we get this over and over again. And so it's this walking away from the Word that is the key thing here. And you're right, Janet, these, the, link, the language and the gyrations and the spin can be dizzying. But at the end of the day, it's very simple. If you see a, your church taking a position that seems to be drifting away from the clear teaching of the Scripture, you can tell which one is right by holding on to the Scripture. It's, it's the thing that is our anchor. It's the anchor within the veil, the Word of Christ, the anchor within the veil. You know, back in the ancient world, the ships would come to harbor sometimes at the wrong time. The tide was out, and they couldn't get in. And they would put an anchor in the boat and then tow the boat inside the harbor and drop it in there so that if the storms came up, they, they might get battered in the storm, but they still, they're still anchored inside the harbor, inside the harbor of safety. That's what the scriptures are to us. They're our anchor in the harbor of safety. I think probably half the problem here, Janet, is it's not just people don't think about the attack on scripture. They may not be spending enough time in the word themselves. Absolutely. And I think the statistics bear that out from some of the research, Barna research and else, elsewhere yeah. where they've done research like that. You know, what do you think in terms of the future of evangelism? Do you believe that this is a time of apostasy, as a lot of evangelicals are saying to me, um, and I'm sure you're hearing that as well? Or do you think this might just be a momentary blip? Maybe the Lord is using the pandemic to purge us a little bit and to, you know, refine the refiner's fire kind of deal. What, what do you think? I'm always ready for two things. One is to see the spirit move and revival come upon us. And revival historically has always brought with it cultural reformation and that will be a wonderful thing to see. The second thing I'm always ready to see is to walk outside and see Jesus coming in the clouds. We don't know when that's going to be. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It might not be in our lifetime. It's for us not to focus on those kinds of things, but to focus on what what God is calling us to be as as followers of Christ. And I really do think this is a seminal moment in that the walking away that we saw in the so-called mainline churches 50, 60, 70 years ago, some of them, and all of them today are dens of iniquity, yep. <laughs> and they are synagogues of Satan, to use the revolution, uh, Jesus' metaphor from Revelation. Right. So apart from revival, 
uh, I don't see that this goes any other way. That can, you know, The drift is always away from truth. Nobody ever, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit and regeneration in someone's heart and mind, no one drifts from error into truth. They always drift away, drift away from truth. Yes. And when you, you know, I'm here in South Florida, boats everywhere. If you see a boat anchored to a dock and the lines are not tied securely and it somehow slips its mooring, it always ends up in the same place on the rocks. Right. And that's what I see coming apart from a revival, apart from an awakening within the church, and apart from whatever remnant remains to be faithful to the word of truth above all things. Amen. I, I think it's a time for a new commitment. It's a time for a recommitment. Uh, it's a time for pastors also to stop being silent shepherds and to call out these things. Because I love it. The people want them yep. to give us, you know, give us insights on how to handle these things. The people sitting in the pew are dying for their pastors to teach them how the Word of God applies to the world around us. I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Frank Wright. Check out ChristianPost.com. And thanks for being with us, Frank. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Well, we've talked a lot about the churches across America that are fighting for their religious freedom during this pandemic. And First Liberty Institute this week informed Congress that America's houses of worship fear a wave of lawsuits that would force many to cease their operations, all related to serving people, some of whom might later contract COVID-19. Now, consequently, the religious leaders are seeking immunity from potential negligence suits. We're going to find out more about it now from Mike Berry, General Counsel over at First Liberty Institute. Mike, great to have you back. How have you been? I'm doing great. It's great to be back with you. Thank you so much. Well, tell us a little bit about this written testimony you've submitted from this array of religious leaders. There's this fear about a swarm of lawsuits. Tell us why. Well, you know, uh, First Liberty Institute, we identified um, this issue a couple of weeks ago as we began to think about, uh, the, you know, getting past the, the, the quarantines and the pandemic shutdowns and how the country was going to begin to reopen, including reopening places of worship. And one of the things that struck us was, uh, you know, we were starting to see uh, uh, quite a number of, of lawsuits filed against places, uh, either by employees who've been uh, stricken with the virus or by, you know, just, just patrons who, who, you know, who happen to, 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 you know, if it's a place of business who just happen to be shopping there right. and they get sick. And, and we begin to think about, well, there's no reason why somebody couldn't sue a church or a religious organization for the very same thing, even if that church or religious organization did everything they, that they could to uh, you know, to try to, to to make it a safe place to go, such as sanit you know sanitizing stations, uh, spacing out pews six feet apart, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you know, face masks, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, it, as we began to reach out to religious leaders and religious organizations across the country, we realized very quickly this was not necessarily something that was on their radar, but yet they shared our concerns. 
And so we wrote a letter to Congress uh, simply suggesting and recommending that they uh, not provide total immunity, but, but simply raise the level of, of liability exposure from mere simple negligence to what's called gross negligence. In other words, if somebody is, is, is just being reckless in, in the way that they operate their organization uh, or church, then they're probably going to be liable. But if they're doing what they can and, and honestly trying to do the right thing and keep people safe and somebody happens to get sick, they should not be sued for that. Right. Well, and your fear is not just that they would necessarily win the lawsuit, but that the cost of defending a lawsuit would be prohibitive for many congregations who actually could go broke doing it, right? Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because it, that, that's something that a lot of people overlook in, in, the, in the practice of law. It's not merely whether you can win or lose. It's the mere specter of being sued that often will cause somebody, especially someone, if, if, you know, we're talking a small church that may not have a lot of financial wherewithal, and, and, and the pastor or the board of that church or nonprofit is just going to say, you know what, it's not worth it. We're just not going to open. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't risk somebody getting sick and suing us, even if we do everything right. And so it's, the, it's merely the specter of being sued uh, beyond simply, the, well, can we win or lose? Because it's going to cost them money to hire an attorney, and then it's going to cost them money to defend the lawsuit. And who knows how long that could go on um, and, and, and how much that's going to cost them. And so what ends up happening is, 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 is just the fear alone will cause them to say it's not worth the risk, so we're not going to open and that's, that's not good for, for religious organizations, and that's not good for America. No, it's not. You know, it makes me wonder, though, how in the world, aside from the question of merely defending yourself in a lawsuit would be very, very expensive, as to the suit itself, how would you ever even be able to prove if somebody contracted COVID-19 that they contracted it through germs that no one can see in a church versus they got it off the Walmart cart? How in the world would you ever even prove that? Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, clever clever plaintiff's lawyers know how to how to word the lawsuit such that that really doesn't even matter necessarily, right? They, because as they know, there's a proliferation of these regulations yeah. uh, across the country, right? So uh, the example we gave is that it could be a food pantry in Wyoming, right? And, and, and somebody could uh, get sick. And if that food pantry happens to be following the rules for that you know, uh, city or, or county in Wyoming, but guess what? There are different rules, you know, across the border in Colorado, right. and there are different rules in, you know, in, in some other state as well. And a clever lawyer is simply going to say, yeah, well, how come you didn't follow those rules, right? Yeah. Sure, you followed the bare minimum, but how come you didn't follow the rules, that these more restrictive rules? So there's no way that any organization can possibly follow this complex web of regulations and guidelines and recommendations from coast to coast, which many of which are contradictory. You know, I mean, and one other example I'll give was, you know, recent news reports are, are about it on a cruise ship. I, I think it was the Princess uh, Cruise Lines has been sued, and some of the passengers didn't even get sick, right? Yeah. So they did not get sick, but they sued anyway for emotional damage because they were near, they were physically near somebody who did get sick, and they were worried that they might get sick as well. Yeah. And so they felt that that gave them the right to sue for millions of dollars. 
And we cannot allow that to happen to churches and, and religious organizations in this country. No. And, and you know, we, we do know there are a lot of people out there prone to filing lawsuits that are ridiculous. So we know that that's always a possibility, even if a church is involved. But going back to what you said earlier, Mike, when you talk about wanting a standard of gross negligence rather than simple negligence, what is the main distinction when it comes to the actual legal fight? I mean, how would raising the standard to gross negligence stave off some of these lawsuits? Well, simple negligence means that, that let's just say if there, are, if there are 10 rules or 10 guidelines, and for whatever reason, uh, just through oversight or through a mere mistake or accident, it was unintentional, uh, you happen to only follow nine out of the 10, then under a simple negligence standard, you could still be found guilty. In other words, you, you didn't do something that you should have done. That's simple negligence. Right. Uh, gross negligence means that, that basically if it was an accident or an unintentional, then you're not going to be liable. The, the, the higher standard of gross negligence means that it was with it, it, basically with the, the, you you completely disregarded those rules. You knew the risks and you disregarded them and said, "I don't care. Uh, I, I don't care if somebody gets sick. Uh, I'm doing this anyway." Um, the example that we use often in, in kind of law school classes is uh, if, if if somebody knows the speed limit on the road is 55 miles an hour and it's a wet road. Um, because it's been raining and it's very curvy, uh, right? Mm-hmm. And they decide, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna drive down this road at 100 miles an hour. I know the speed limit's 55. I know it's 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 wet. I know there's lots of curves. I'm just gonna do it anyway. You know that that's like you know gross negligence, right? Yeah, or recklessness, yeah. right? Um, simple negligence could be you know there was a pothole in the road and and I, I simply didn't see it and I missed it and I hit the pothole and I ended up having you know, an accident or something, a blowout or something like that, you know. I mean, um, that, that's, uh, I'm just using this as an analogy, but that's sort of the difference between uh, uh, gross negligence and simple negligence. It's basically an oversight, uh, an unintentional oversight versus uh, uh, an intentional disregard for, for you know, safety or, or well-being of others. A higher bar. What would preclude anybody from suing a church for something like involuntary manslaughter? Do you see that as ever being a possibility and something that Congress could intervene to prevent? I mean, again, so nothing prevents anybody in this country from filing a lawsuit, right? Sure, sure. Um, and so uh, people are always free to file the lawsuit if they want. And then the question becomes, well, how likely are they to prevail? Um, so what really the, 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 what Congress can do is provide that deterrent, right? Okay. If they raise the standard for negligence, then it's going to hopefully deter those lawsuits because people will know uh, if I bring this lawsuit – it's very unlikely to to succeed, and and in the law we actually have things called you know frivolous lawsuits uh, or uh, an, you know a fancy old term is a, a mendacious plaintiff or and so in other words people who are just filing lawsuits for the purpose of harassing others and they can be sanctioned by the court for doing that so there is there is a sort of a, a way to to keep people from doing that but if the standard is simple negligence it's such a low standard that it, 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 there's really nothing to stop somebody. From just saying, hey, look, I know some, you know, I, uh, somebody in my family got sick and 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 passed away. I'm I'm suing you for for manslaughter, uh, you know, uh, or at least the 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 the, the tort version of, of, of manslaughter, right? Uh, yeah. Wrongful death. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, it's it's a free country. Like I said, people can sue for whatever they want to sue for. Our hope is that common sense will prevail, though, and that we will protect religious ministries, organizations, and their leaders 
uh, by by Congress acting to deter that by saying, look, there's going to have to be a much higher standard if you're going to want to try to hold a, a, a place of worship accountable. Very good. Well, Mike Berry, First Liberty Institute. Check him out, firstliberty.org. Thanks a lot, Mike. Great to talk to you. And we'll be back. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. COVID-19 is creating a surge in unplanned pregnancies as American shelter in place. Meanwhile, preborn crisis lines are flooded and we have quadrupled our patients seeking abortions. Your help is needed now more than ever as clinics had to cancel spring fundraisers. Would you consider sponsoring an ultrasound to introduce moms to their preborn babies? When a young mom sees her baby on ultrasound, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Preborn centers are the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And this May, through a challenge grant, Preborn is able to send $100,000 to clinics if this goal is reached. You can help. Call 855-402-BABY now. One ultrasound is just $28, but this challenge will double your efforts. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. Once again, call 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at Chan. This is Janet Mefford today. And now here's your host, Janet Mefford. I don't know about you, but I'm really tired of hearing about the new normal. You know, we've only been going through this thing for a couple of months and already it's been predetermined that life will never, ever be the same. And I even wonder how many people are asking some of these media outlets, how do you know there's going to be a new normal? How do you know life will never be the same? Well, maybe because on the left, they don't want it to be the same. They don't want to let any serious crisis go to waste. So in their view, it's time to go full Orwell and make sure that you don't waste a pandemic. We wouldn't want that. But listen to this. I was reading some of these stories over at Forbes about the future of air travel. And right now, 90% of the airplanes, you know, flights have been canceled. So very few people are flying up obviously, during all of this. But you already have a number of airline experts who are commiserating on what airline travel will be like for you and me after the pandemic, which I kind of laughed at, ironically, because I thought, for the left, there will be no end to the pandemic. What are you talking about? We'll be shut down forever. You know, we've only had more than 100,000 small businesses go under. So, you know, that's small potatoes. If we shut people down through, you know, the end of the year, maybe we can really get that number up to about a half billion or, you know, who knows? The sky's the limit, right? Well, let's say half a million. At any rate, I'm looking at this story. Future air travel is touchless. 
yet terrifying. How does mass transit work if everyone has to stay two meters apart and where national borders can open and close at short notice? They talk in this story at Forbes about this group called SITA, CETA, we'll call them. They're out with a new paper. This is a Geneva-based air transport communications and IT specialist. CETA has a new paper called A New Normal. The Changing Face of Air Transport Post-COVID-19, outlining how aviation can use technology to help cope with the long and complex impact of COVID-19. How long and complex does anybody think it's going to be? I don't know. We're just assuming it's going to be long and complex. Apparently, this is going to last for the next 50 years, and you better get used to that mask. That's kind of how a lot of these people are talking. Here are the paper's key takeaways. Borders could open and close with no notice period as governments take a new, more rigid approach to monitoring the health of incoming passengers. Flight schedules will be unpredictable and flights subject to short notice cancellation and rescheduling. That's awesome. So you've packed your suitcase, you're in the cab, you're headed for the airport. Your airport happens to be about an hour and a half away and you're about 45 minutes into the trip. You get a little note on your app. Oh, sorry, your flight's been canceled. Oh, thank you very, very much. Uh, Driver, take me back to my house. There could be fewer short-haul flights as online video conferencing replaces business travel. Leisure travel could be limited to infrequent long-haul trips as pressure intensifies for a more sustainable air transport industry. That's the climate change junk right there, folks. As demand for flights drop, airlines might shrink their fleets. Touchless travel will accelerate as automation, contactless, and self-service technology creates a social distancing-friendly passenger experience. Touchless travel. Tell the TSA about touchless travel. because <laughs> Let me just tell you, I've had a number of experiences with the TSA where all I wanted to do was invoke touchless travel. Get your hands off me. Do I look like a terrorist to you? Let's see. They also talk about biometrics, digital IDs, stored on phones, verified with facial recognition. It'll all be used to let passengers through security and onto aircraft. And airlines will constantly update your phone. I have no problem with that necessarily. But the problem is international travel is literally the scapegoat for the spread of COVID-19. That's not going to suddenly stop being the case. There's been a global effort to contain the movement of people. Some think it will take until the year 2022 before demand for flights starts to reach pre-COVID-19 levels. So the new normal is only going to last for two years? No, they don't get into it. It's a new normal, don't you know? It's a new normal. And then they have this whole section on it's worse than 9-11. What does the new normal look like? Oh, they talk about boarding passes, all having to be on smartphones. What are the implications of that? That means everybody has to have a smartphone, right? There are a lot of people who don't have a smartphone. Older generation, for example, they're still flip phone people if they have cell phones at all. I guess maybe they wouldn't be traveling as often as people who are younger, but there are people who are traveling who are older. They all have to have apps and smartphones and biometric technology. Apparently so. One quote here from the CETA paper is, we can no longer consider returning to a normal operating environment for our industry, but rather one that will become a new normal. I'm sorry for using that phrase again, folks. I know that's annoying. So there is a lot about... Uh, biometrics, apps, cloud-based platforms, new kinds of digital identity, facilitating a smooth, touchless journey, and increasing use of all of this stuff in order to make sure that we can get up and running. I, you know, the middle seat conundrum is another thing mentioned. How can you socially distance if you, if you have somebody sitting next to you? Well, how in the world can you afford to fly an airplane if you get rid of a third of the passengers or whatever it amounts to percentage-wise? Here's the key thing in this whole piece. 
they quote the director general and CEO of one of these airline groups that is weighing in with what we ought to be doing. And here's the quote. Evidence suggests that the risk of transmission on board aircraft is low. What? Buried. I mean, it is buried, buried, buried way down in the story. Your risk of transmission on board is low, which is why they're recommending these biosecurity ideas. Temperature screening of all passengers, airport workers and travelers, boarding and deplaning processes that reduce contact, limiting movement within the cabin during flight, more frequent cleaning, simplified catering procedures that lower crew movement and interaction with passengers when proven and available at scale, testing for COVID-19 or immunity passports could also be included as temporary biosecurity measures. Wait a minute. I thought you just said that evidence says the risk of transmission on board aircraft is low. I mean, I've read other stories where they talk about the fact that all food will have to be prepackaged, food and drink. So forget getting your little Coke on the cart when they come by. There's going to be no more of that. And also, they're talking about getting rid of in-flight entertainment screens. So those screens that you have on planes like the 777, forget that. No more. Because people might touch it, even though the evidence for your risk of contracting COVID-19 on board the aircraft is low. You see why people are getting a little suspicious about all these health experts weighing in on what we ought to be doing at any given moment? Because this just seems like killing a fly with a sledgehammer a little bit. I'm not denying that there is a risk of COVID-19. I'm not denying that it is a contagious disease and that we don't have a vaccine and all the other talking points that we throw around. But there is conflicting information. Lots of it. Particularly when you look at this story. I'm looking at this story from Medical Express. Among detected cases of COVID-19 in the United States, 1.3% of patients will die from the illness, according to a new calculation. And that's only based on cumulative deaths and detected cases across the U.S. It doesn't account for undetected cases where a person is infected but shows few or no symptoms. So what is that saying? It's saying that based on all the deaths so far, and all the cases that have been identified in the U.S., the death rate is 1.3%. And if you factor in the unknown number of cases, the death rate might drop closer to 1%. I would argue it might even be lower than that, because what if it's the case that millions of us have had it, 50-some percent of us never knew we had it, and for those of us who never took tests but were sick earlier in the year, who knows how many people went through that? There were a lot of us, I think. You could have millions of people who had COVID-19. So that would drop the death rate rate even lower, would it not? So based on these numbers, and this was a director here, a researcher from the University of Washington in Seattle, based on these numbers, we're going to just upend airline travel. And I'm telling you what, if you make touchless everything at the airport and and all of these biometrics and you're going to institute all of these new things about bag check-in has to be remote, you can't carry on, and all these things that have been talked about, You really think that's going to help the airlines recover or is that something that some people would like to see in terms of the airlines not being able to recover? That would be dumb for anybody, but they do have a really big carbon footprint, those big jets. Maybe there are some people who think the airlines shouldn't really make a full comeback. I hate to be conspiratorial, but we know there are people like that. Prince Harry thinks you shouldn't be flying, even though he flies around in a private jet with his wife. But that's different because he's a prince or an ex-prince or whatever he's calling himself these days. But that's how a lot of people think. There's too much airline travel, too much of a carbon footprint. So maybe there are some people who believe that it would be better for the airlines not to have such a big footprint in the sky. And you know what else I have a question about? 
when they talk about testing for COVID-19 at airports and even doing spot blood checks, that would be part of the testing that was mentioned in another story. Who's going to administer that? You can have government workers lined up with needles and you queue. So we're not standing in line enough at airports. Now we got to you know, get in a line to be stabbed before we get on the plane for the purpose of sitting in an airplane where there's a very low risk of contracting COVID-19. Who's going to administer this? Who is going to make sure that all of these things are tended to? And how much is that going to add to the wait time? And how much earlier do you have to get to the airport? I mean, I've never seen such a good case made for driving and or staying home. I was talking to somebody recently who said, well, the next thing they'll want to do is force us all to drive electric cars so we can't go very far from home. Then they'll really maintain our carbon footprint and and keep it where they want it to be. Yeah, don't go full Orwell. Don't kill a fly with a sledgehammer. Let's handle what is right in front of us. By the grace of God, we'll come through it. And let's not freak out. We really need our airline industries to recover. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time. 